My name is Allison Kajkowski. Wait till the message goes away. Um, I am the vice president of Coronet, incoming president. It, uh, standing in the footsteps of Tommy today. Um, we're very excited for today's panel. I think this is a this great lineup and we are in the middle of um, kind of the, the rise of our events coming back. Um, so yesterday we had the Women's Leadership um, DEI Committee event uh, celebrating International Women's Day. Amazing turnout, our first in-person event of the year. We had um, almost 50 attendees for that. And tomorrow it's our twice delayed, but finally in-person um, make up for our New Year's event. So we are now current registration, over 300 people. Um, very, very excited to see everyone in person. Many of you I have not seen in way too long. Um, and then coming up later this month, we have a prop tech event on the 23rd. Um, the impact of amenity apps on the tenant experience. And then another prop tech event on April 12th about the metaverse and what it means for Siri. And this is a follow-up to um, an end-user event we had where we picked some brains about what the end-users are seeing in the metaverse impact, and now we're bringing in the service provider perspective. So very, very excited for all those things coming up. Um, as always, if there are any ideas or suggestions um, for different panel ideas, things that are on your mind, always come to us, um, either myself or Steven or Tommy, and now Larry coming in as our new VP. And on that note, Stephen, I will hand it over to you. Great. Thank you, Alison. Um, welcome everyone to today's panel titled Flexibility and the Future of Occupancy Planning. I'm Stephen Coulthard, part of the executive management team at Cumming Group and chair of Cornet's chapter strategy and portfolio planning committee, where we focus on the issues real estate leaders need to know. Today's call will follow our usual format of a 40-minute panel conversation followed by 20 minutes Q&A. To allow the Q&A to be interactive, we do not control your audio or video, so please turn them off now and keep the comments coming through the chat. The more, the better. When we get to the Q&A, David, our moderator, will call our individuals to turn on their audio and video to ask questions they raised in the chat. Today's topic, flexibility in the future of occupancy planning, was chosen as corporations continue to struggle with balancing supply with demand under uncertain times. Our panel, comprised of two end users, two invested landlords and two service providers, will speak to how corporations are balancing supply with demand, how they're building in flexibility through a combination of direct leasing and agile space, and how well landlords and capital markets are aligned to accommodate this new flexibility. So without further ado, let's meet our panelists. We have two end users. William Monaghan is the global head of corporate real estate at the 50,000 employee financial services firm, Willis Tower Watson. Will's team is responsible for all real estate activities across their 8 million square feet which is spread over 475 buildings and 140 countries. Richfield is the global head of real estate and portfolio strategy at 250,000 employee aerospace and defense company Raytheon Technologies. Rich is responsible for enterprise portfolio strategy, lease administration and transactions across their 82 million square feet. 
Now, in two invested landlords, John Canuck is the global head of leasing and occupier experience at Nuveen, a wholly owned subsidiary of the TIAA, one of the limited number of non-sovereign money managers globally that have exceeded $1 trillion in assets under management. Wayne Taub is the part of the leadership at Jack Resnick & Sons, one of New York City's most respected owners and managers, with over 6 million square feet of commercial office space and 900 residential units. Wayne is responsible for asset management, engineering and construction throughout their portfolio, in addition to managing IT, insurance, energy procurement and overall office administration. Our two service providers, Brandon Medeiros is the founder of Alliday Partners, a company dedicated to powering flex solutions in commercial real estate with prior experience at WeWork. Today's panel is built around his area of expertise. And finally to our moderator, David Nelson, an EVP at CBRE. David serves multi-market clients to develop and implement strategies to improve performance of corporate real estate. David is also a successful entrepreneur, angel investor, and served as a contributing editor to three HBR articles on the role of real estate in corporations. And with that, I will hand you over to David. Enjoy the panel. Stephen, thank you very much and welcome all friends. Clearly we're in a time of uncertainty as well as growing anticipation as the world has learned to live with the pandemic to varying degrees and a return to office dawns on the horizon. So let's get to it today in terms of how all of that translate in, translates into our work in corporate real estate. Our first question to the panel today, clearly the return to office varies widely, geographically, by industry, by company, by demographic, and perhaps by building and workplace quality. And there's the little matter of future virus variants and how they may affect the world. In an ideal world, how should we use the levers within direct leasing and agile space, on the other hand, to meet such an uncertain demand curve? Rich Field, first up with Raytheon, your thoughts? Well, first of all, I apologize. I think uh, the host turned my video off and I can't turn it back on, but at least my audio <laughs> works. Um, so, you know, in, in the mean, oh, wait. There we go. Hey, okay, <laughs> I'm back. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to address this question, you know, from a strictly office perspective, you know, we have a lot of use types. And so I'm going to assume there isn't any, you know, big uh, structural um, impacts on, on the office space that we need to account for. And, and I think right now it's just, you know, nothing, nothing new here, but flexibility is king. Um, you know, if, if I could just draw up the ideal scenario, it'd be a three-year lease with a really aggressive footprint, you know, no assigned seats and uh, ability to leverage landlord co-working space for any, any spillover if it should occur. Uh, now, that's the ideal, and there's so many challenges to actually get there. There's cultural changes, you know, pre-pandemic our company and many companies were not used to sharing seats, you know, unassigned seating. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of bosses who measure performance just based on, per, you know, attendance. So I, I think that this has kind of exposed that uh, a lot. And there's, so there's still some cultural challenges getting there. 
um, you know, seamlessly integrating the on-site and the off-site folks. If we have a Zoom meeting and half the people are on-site and half are off, you know, is it creating kind of the haves and the have-nots and drowning out the voices of the people remotely? So there's there's obviously technology challenges to get there. Um, you know, short leases, you know, have depreciation impacts. Uh, and obviously there's a landlord underwriting. We're not, you know, we, we are a, a good credit tenant. And typically when we do long deals, we get better deals because the landlord can underwrite those with the financing and doing a short-term deal kind of takes that leverage away. Uh, you know, at least, at least as things stand today. Um, yeah. So I, I, I mean, it's, there's challenges to get there for sure. Um, Sorry, I'm seeing questions pop up in, in real time here. Um, yeah, we, you know, Field we do, and come back to them. Yeah, we can come back to those, but, but one that just popped up, I'll, I'll answer. We do see trade offs when going shorter term in terms of landlord concessions for sure. Less, less TIs, less free run. You know, that's like that's, you know, pretty much a given and, and directly correlated to the, the term of the, the lease. Um, you know, and, and then, you know, as we navigate these, un, you know, uncertain times, I know I hear a lot of people saying the pandemic's over, but we, we, we're likely in a lull, in my opinion. And what happens when it ramps back up or there's, like you said in the question, if there's another variant, I think the trick here is just measuring, you know, and, and, and collecting data uh, on how we're actually using the space, a bare minimum, the badge swipe data, even better if we can measure how the actual spaces are being used. Are they using the quiet rooms, the conference rooms? Um, are they actually using the reservation systems or are they just kind of plopping down and, um, you know, trying to put their picture of their family up on shared desks and things like that. Uh, you know, so one, and also just getting, hearing the voice of the employees, and the customers, both before and after and kind of throughout um, seeing how we're doing. And, and I think we have to, be okay that we're not going to get it right out of the box, but we have to kind of, um, you know, be willing to, to shift our, our thinking as we go. And the more we hear from the employees, uh, the better. So we are trying to make that as e easy and seamless as possible, setting up QR codes on desks that they can just scan and provide quick feedback on, on their setup. Do they have all the tools that they need? If they forget a charger, you know, is that readily available? And you know, people haven't been back in the office in a couple of years. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of questions uh, immediately, um, you know, that hopefully will level off over time. Sure. Rich, thank you. I think you unpacked the entire waterfront of issues that we're all facing. Um, Bill, uh, turning to you, I want to feel free to comment on any and all of, uh, of Rich's observations. And I, and I also wonder if I might ask you to drill into the information piece of what he touched on, the data and information piece, because I know you guys have done quite a nice job uh, there at Willis uh, around that. Um, yeah, so I mean, I, I feel all the pains that, that Rich feels. Um, we, you know, we don't expect any normalcy in terms of our occupancy over the next two years, at the very least. We think it's going to be a very slow return. And you know, the, the, the path that we've taken is we're, we're at the moment letting people sort of choose where and when they want to work indefinitely. Um, 
So having said that, you know, we do have the infrastructure in space to sort of measure the occupancy of our spaces. We've had sensors in our offices for a long time. Um, but really, that's just data collecting. We don't think it's, it's useful for really any future state of what the office is going to look like. But I think as it becomes more difficult for us to predict occupancy demand, it's obviously going to be very hard for landlords to predict demand on their space. And, and so I definitely think some sort of shared offering, whether it be co-working or an event center, it should become a feature in most office buildings. And, you know, and once tenants get more comfortable with a portion of shared space, it will become a normal expectation when you're looking at buildings. Um, you know, it, it, and, and exactly what Rich said, it's very, you know, the flexibility of paying for extra space when you need it and not paying for it when you don't need it is a very exciting prospect, but operationalizing that still has a long way to go. You know, I'd love to say, you know, when, you know, if we have a thousand people in an office, um, you know, half of those people, you know, aren't in the office every day or probably more than that. And then on the odd days that there are people, we'd love for them to use this flex space on a pay-as-you-go basis or some sort of basis. But actually getting that to work and getting, getting the human factor right there is very hard. Um, but it, it's just time. Change is hard and it, it happens over time. So, um, you know, and, and I think to your point on, on the information and the data, just keep measuring it and you know, be prepared to pivot to you know, different types of space when you see stuff that's not being used or being overused. Um, no. you know, that's what we could do now. So both you and Rich have touched on the idea of in-building flex space, the landlords providing some sort of flex solution, whether it be one that they've um, grown on their own or one that they've uh, partnered with from an, one of the brand name outside service providers. Uh, in that area. Um, Wayne, I wonder, you know, turning to you as a landlord, your thoughts and reactions to that, and then I'll follow up with, with a more pointed question about finance. I mean, look, I think landlords are adapting to demand um, in terms of flexibility. I think historically, the adaptation has been in the form of termination rights, uh, typically with penalties, expansion and contraction rights, ROFOs, ROFERS, uh, then of course, flex space. Some landlords have decided that uh, they want to get into that business. Uh, you know, I cite Tishman getting into studios and Zoe, Heinz, Heinz Squared, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, landlords have, have invested uh, significant money in this. And then other landlords have just signed leases with, tenants, uh, the likes of the WeWorks and the Notel way back, uh, that also provide this service. And so the amenity could be offered in terms of flexibility in the form of a lease. Um, but ultimately it's, it's a financial decision, which probably David leads to your next question. I'll let you ask you yeah. in terms of the financial <laughs> impacts. David, yeah. just on the, on the question of flex and conventional, I like, I think it's important to, we talked about it a little bit in some of the preps, but the, the economics of flex and conventional are, are inverted to each other, right? The, and the more you use flex, the more expensive it is. That, that's true, right? If we service all of our demand only through flex, we end up paying more for it. If we service in frequent demand for it, we tend to make savings relative to conventional. And the economics of conventional are the less we use it, the more expensive it is. And the more we use it, the cheaper it is. 
Uh, and I think it's important to, as you go through this framework, to, to recognize that those two curves do meet each other. There is an equilibrium there. What should we be using conventionally? How do we try to find the frameworks that say, we need to provide our people X amount of space. The X amount of space needs to have high productivity. However, we have infrequent demand. That infrequent demand is best served through flex because its economics are advantageous. We tend to always think of them as two separate things. Um, and to the point that Will uh, and Rich talked about of internal flex and short-term leases, long-term leases, there's a, there's the math tells us that shorter term, higher run rate, higher capex, we're supposed to deliver better environments, longer-term deals, better better run rate, better capex, better build out. How do we manage that together with the economics of flex that's adjacent? Right, so the we have peak demand that's happening infrequently. We can map that. We know it. How do we service that in environments where we can take advantage of both economics and sort of reduce ourselves from the risk of the worst part of both the economics? Low, low utilization, conventional, high utilization, flex, etc. Well, I don't know if that makes sense, but that's sort of the framework that I that I always kind of carry in my mind. So that's a very interesting and powerful framework for the tenant side of this, uh, this equation, Brandon. And I know, I know you've done some really nice work developing all the math and the analytics around that to help people calculate that sweet spot in the middle um, and really guide their leasing plans. Assuming all of that works for the tenant, I wonder how well it works for uh, landlords. So specifically, um, Wayne and, and also John Gernuki, um, debt and equity financing, how well that it's prepared to accommodate uh, and or adapt to meet these new needs of uncertainty, whether it be greater flexibility in direct leases themselves or a greater amount of flex space um, within uh, the stack that you provide to tenants. Wayne? Wayne may be on mute or have dropped off. John, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, we're looking closely at this. I'm back in the office finally. Um, we all came back on March 7th, which is a nice welcome relief for my wife and everybody else in the family. But, um, you know, we're taking a hard look at this because in what we're buying and what we own and what we're gonna be selling and repositioning ourselves, we have a lot of legacy assets that are older and dated. Some of the statistics I provided some of the people on the panel here were 51 million square feet of positive absorption for any building built in 2015 to present. And anything that predated that, it's 169 million in negative absorption. So we're looking at our properties going, well, how do we create a better flex, better experience for our tenants? and what kind of capital are we putting in regards to health and wellness, amenitization, which is key right now. So it's near and dear to us. We're trying to get out of a lot of the legacy assets that are vertical buildings and some of the CBDs and looking more at, you know, call it the alternatives, which is more innovative tech, R&D, also studio space and life science, which seems to be really driving the markets. But, the properties that we have today and working in a partnership with our tenants, we're trying to create that flexibility because of the short term and the need for the spill off is so critical for them. And so most of the tenants, I would say 75% of them are asking for that today. So anything that we have in our properties, we're saying, look, we've got spill off on the third and fourth floors. You can take a portion of it. We won't break it up. And then hopefully when this passes, 
then we can um, you know, secure them on a longer term. So certainly there's a flight to quality, which you've highlighted with the absorption, uh, the negative absorption figures, which were powerful. Thank you for those data points. Um, I think we'll all put those in our management briefing decks. Um, uh, and I hear you saying that really it's case by case. That, uh, that your underwriting varies building to building and perhaps year to year uh, in terms of your ability to either accept or deny the things that the tenant might be asking for. That's exactly right. I mean, we're seeing different parts of, you know, geography as you look at it, the Northeast, the Northwest have probably been punished the most just because return to work. So we're looking at that. We're looking in the Sunbelt states kind of as target markets now because a lot of people in America are looking at those markets because favorable taxes, favorable location, educated workforce. Uh, you look at California, 300 firms have moved out of the state in the last you know, five years to Texas and other areas. Um, so we've just gotta be really smart and nimble in regards to how we look at things. Good. Wayne, if you're back, any thoughts? He sent me a text saying he's not on mute, but clearly not working. Okay, um, so thank you for that. So I'm not hearing that there are any full stop issues in equity markets, but that we will have to navigate um, the, uh, the financial needs and constraints of landlords on a building by building basis, which you know, frankly makes sense. That's not much of a change from the way we've operated, just uh, we've been moving some of the variables around. But on the... So, on the Go ahead, Wilson. Yeah. Well, I, was, I mean, this is certainly not my area of expertise, but I would think that, you know, it's just a different risk profile for lenders. You know, generally office buildings are expected to produce a steady long-term income. If a portion of that asset now produces more uncertain but higher income, you know, they just have to price that risk into the loans. Um, yeah. and, then as, and then the landlords will price it into the rent that the tenants pay. Um, I think capital markets will innovate quickly when they need to because, you know, empty space or, or, you know, space that's producing income is certainly better than empty space that's not producing any, you know, regardless yeah. of work. And, yeah, and well, I'm going to bring up a good point um, in regards to how we're looking at, you know, if you look at the market, there hasn't been a big discount on asking or base rents, but there has been a big discount in regards to net effective rent. So with the TIs commission so forth. And everything right now is kind of going haywire. Um, we've got some deals in play right now, and we're working with some coworkers uh, that are saying, "Hey, you know, we're we're willing to give in ten percent, five percent. We're asking for fifteen or twenty percent, but the numbers keep increasing um, as it relates to the tenant improvements right now. So we're just trying to price accordingly, but it's really difficult as we underwrite." Yeah, but on the on that that front, John, like the if you start seeing higher TIs, higher free rents, degradation on on NER, you're we're trading NER for weighted average lease term, right? We're trying to, and CoStar had a great report last, you know, 2009. We were saw a 22 percent reduction from 2008, and we saw $75 foot TIs. Now we're seeing $150 foot TIs with no degradation on face rate. So our NERs are are suffering, and if the real question behind that is is the reason for that that flexibility is key and to induce people to sign long-term, you have to give them greater concession packages, right? If we accept that as truth, then we're, we're going to see declining NERs, which will mean 
obviously lower LTVs and more difficulty. If we continue on the vein of, well, how do we give flexibility? Any, uh, any owner moving to a shorter term lease structure starts to move into different things. You can maintain any R, but you're giving up weighted average lease term, which means your lenders are going to look for lockboxes, springing lockboxes, you know, good news facilities, et cetera. So we're going to be carrying higher reserves through the whole period. And, and so it's a, it's a pretty brutal trade-off, uh, particularly in rents that are experiencing that, that NER degradation over a 10-year term. And if you're looking to sell your building with Walt, it's a real concern because people are going to underwrite to that. So that is going to be a discount. So it's, yeah. it's really hard at this yeah. point to try to price accordingly. But as Will was saying, like, go ahead, sorry. Is my volume back, Dave? Yep. Yes, yep. you're back. Great. Technology. <laughs> what I started to say to myself in this conference room because I couldn't be heard uh, was I, I don't think the basic fundamentals of the debt and equity markets are going to change really at the end of the day. Um, capital markets are going to underwrite value. Value is driven by NOI uh, and market cap rates. And then NOI is driven by monetizing space. And so, you know, any decision around co-working that a landlord's going to make is going to go through, I think, a very similar calculus, which is if I create a co-working environment as an amenity to the building, is it going to allow me to lease my vacant space faster? Uh, am I going to be able to make some of that lost or potentially lost income up if it's an amenity in the office tower? So that's one of the you know decisions the landlord's going to have to make. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, I, I do believe NOI and marketability from a landlord's perspective is going to drive the decision process. On the flip side, that's, you know, that's the supply. From a demand standpoint, I don't think most corporations really have all the answers at this point. It's not, you know, this, is a, this has been a very, very fluid situation. And so it's, a bit of a risk for landlords to sort of solve for something from a supply standpoint without really fully understanding what the demand is. And so I do believe over time, it's gonna be a bit of give and take. Um, and that's just gonna to have to work itself out as people start to come back to the office. Yeah, bang on. And John, to that point and way to that point, like what the market has to demonstrate before this moves forward is that if you give up weighted average lease term, Will, to what you said earlier, you can actually increase your NOI. Under the conventional structure, if you give up weighted average lease term, you're going to decrease financeability, decrease LTV, do a bunch of bad things for your equity or for your levered return. If what we have to demonstrate in the next two to three years is that the integration of flex as a, as a concession, right, induces declines, slight declines in weighted average lease term, but increases in NOI. So we're justified now in trading off from 10 years to eight years to seven and a half years, depending on what our market wants and our tenant wants, because, well, to your point, some of that space, 20% of that space is generating 1.2 to 1.4 NOI, right? So maybe that space is financed at 40, 50% LTV, but on a levered return basis, we're not at 12 anymore. We're at 14, 15, and that becomes the new scale. That Walt starts to move down, start to incorporate more. You're recognizing that levered return is what you're after, delivering price points to your offer buyers. Um, we're not there yet. But the market is, is desperately trying to demonstrate that. Um, and that's why a lot of, that's why TIA Kreft and Heinz and Dishman, that's why we're having this conversation. Um, it's, it's really up to us to show that that's a, a functional and workable uh, new operating model.
Let, let's turn from money uh, for a few minutes here uh, to the actual physical environment itself. And I, I ask everyone here, landlords, tenant service providers, to pull out their crystal ball and look forward into the future. So the built environment, these, t- these uh, tenant improvements that we create, those are long-term assets. Um, and uh, they outlast business cycles. They outlast generations of technology. And certainly they outlast um, the duration of this pesky pandemic, uh, at least so far. Um, The built environment doesn't change quickly uh, or easily. As you look out and just let's let's say five years, go further if you've got the guts, but let's say five years. What do you hope to leave behind from the pre-pandemic era in terms of what you build? um, And what do you hope to carry forward? Brandon, your thoughts? Uh, less neon signs and catchy slogans. Number one. <laughs> <laughs> My joke for the day, guys. Yeah, uh, good one. Yeah, I, I like to bring it back into uh, into flex again and just kind of go real high level down, back down. What we have to give up, I think, is flex for the sake of flex, right? Like we're not building this stuff anymore just because we have to. We think we have to build it. We're not going to expand that way anymore. We're not going to go and say, if I build flex in this marketplace. It means that people will consume it. So I know I'm not necessarily addressing the built environment question, but the but the purpose for us now has to be it's purpose driven flex. It's flex is a concession. It's flex that does something for a specific asset. So we have to start. We have to put that away, uh, the last ten years away, and start focusing on how do I do this as purpose driven flex that's going to create more stickiness with my tenants. It's going to address their business plans. So for me, that's number one. And then the the second to the built environment question is. We really have to start focusing on standardizations of built environments. Um, what's always been known is, you know, we, we build an environment, it lasts for X amount of years, a new kind of company comes in, tears it down, and, and rebuilds it again. The nuts and bolts of what we're in that space are no different. We had the same amount of conference rooms, same amount of desks, roughly. We had the same amount of, uh, of kitchen spaces. We just rebuild them in a different space. We, when we talk about flex and this mentality of flex is that we want those environments to, to last for a long period of time. We want them to be reusable. doesn't matter if you have a thousand people in one organization or 10 people in 100 organizations. They're just a thousand people who need common space types. They may work slightly differently. So for me, what I want to give up is the notion of this mass expansion of flex, this, this, this reason that we have to build is because we have to go after this external marketplace. It's still true, but it's not as true as purpose-driven. We need to build this. We need to recognize the environments are going to be 10, 15-year environments that are going to have three, five, seven-year CapEx refresh windows, and that are going to be generally designed for the types of tenants that are in our buildings, not for any random reason that this is just how we build flex. Um, so that for me, it goes back into that built environment. It's going to be unique. It's going to be differentiated, but by the end of the day, the counts will look very, very similar and that'll help Will and that'll help Rich be able to say, look, my, this is what my people want. And I want to be able to have access to this and the business plans tend to be more functional under that framework. So Will, Rich, pick that up if you would, please. The thought about this is what my people want. As I listen to Brandon's explanation, and I don't think any of us would argue with the idea that we want to design something that will stand the test of time. Do you see that as in effect being a design that speaks to the least common denominator and perhaps doesn't address the, the immediate needs today of the employees that we're hoping to attract back to the office? 
or do you see that as a much more positive and open-ended sort of flexibility? Yeah, I, I see. I, I think what Brandon was getting at, and I agree, is, is it's more about the flexibility of the space type and, and you know, to be able to cater to different types of users and, and, and what they need out of the space differently. But it's, you know, I was looking at some space yesterday and, you know, they were taking a much more modular approach. Uh, even the conference rooms weren't kind of built all the way up to the ceiling. And, uh, you know, so you could really be moving the conference rooms and offices and workstations around much more fluidly uh, without the big infrastructure. So, the, so as long as the furniture vendors are, you know, thinking more in that realm that, you know, this is kind of the kit of parts, uh, I think that will go a lot further. And, and, and then just to build on, you know, what else I think I want to see, I don't think we're really, I don't think most companies are there yet, but I think just right now a lot of companies are, are burning out with meeting overload because we were missing out on those pop-in conversations and you know now you're having a 30-minute block to ask a five-minute question and you know it, it, we're just we're just over scheduling and and i think that it, it's it's pointing a spotlight on the need for more asynchronous type work where available you know, and, and just being able to work offline and have that transparency, it doesn't matter where you are or when you are, but um, we, we need a solution, <laughs> at, least, at least we do. Uh, I, I'm, I'm speculating that this is uh, common against with most companies or, or more, more so than not, but we're just suffering from meeting burnout. And I think we have to think about different ways to work and, and really make that more sustainable. So it doesn't matter if you're in the office or not, but, but, you know, if you go in, you have, kind of have that flexibility. And if, and if you're, uh, you know, if you're not, you're not missing out and you're, you're still contributing. So I, I think there's not a good solution there yet, but I've, I've been putting a lot of thought into how we accomplish that and, you know, have some strong opinions. Rich, I know you, you made a career change recently. Uh, so feel free to answer this in the context of either, either firm you've been with. Um, uh, anything from the pre-pandemic days that you'd never do again in terms of the the built environment? I mean, it's a little bit out of my swim lane as I'm more about, you know, uh, transactions and portfolio strategy, but um, I, I, I think it, I think it's really more about the technology, to be honest, and, you know, creating just more adaptable technology and, and before I don't think that was always the case I mean you you had kind of um, you know rooms that were uh, like the telepresence rooms right it's one it's one point to the next it, you know and, and I, it's connecting one major office to another major office and uh, you know it's not to say that you still can't have that but it needs to be much more flexible and adaptable I mean those were huge investments um, and, you know and now we kind of have all of that at, at our at, at each of our desktops and we just need to, you know, less about these big monuments and uh, just be more adaptable, I think. Invest in phone booths, Rich. Invest in a phone booth company because we're going to build a lot of phone booths. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me, let me put that question to you, give you a shot at it. Anything from the pre-pandemic you'd never do again? Oh, well, I mean, I, I feel like we, you know, we build spaces and, you know, a year later, especially from a technology or an AV standpoint, they're obsolete already. Um, I, you know, I, I think that, you know, these, these offices, you know, that we were building that just have large seas of open plan desking is, is going to be left behind because 
but you know we don't want our people just coming you know commuting into the city and you know sitting and staring at their computer screen all day in an office and which for paying you know five figures for that desk for them to do that when they could just be doing it at home so I, I think that um, will become a thing of the past and I think assigned seating will become a thing of the past because you know assigning desks to teams and individuals that are only being used a couple of times a week will become more and more untenable from you know from from a financial aspect and and from an ESG aspect you know you have these large energy sucking buildings that are just sitting empty um, and so yeah I, I think you know getting more efficient um, is is key um, I, I think in our spaces going forward we want to create many different settings that just won't become obsolete as quick you know social settings and um, you know not just desks social settings phone booths all, all, all the sorts of things that people will continue to use you know it's no it's no secret that that you know that that open plan desk was just never that great for anyone. Um, yeah, sort of a relic of the industrial area era in, in many ways. You know, if you go back. Yeah, well, one thing I'd like to see that I've been seeing a lot of the, these amenity-rich buildings that are replacing these bland offices of old and creating a more exciting environment for, for workers. There's more places for people to socialize and collaborate, which I think is going to be the biggest inducement for people after being stuck in their homes for two years. You, know, you want to get out and see people and socialize um, and socialize with your coworkers um, with that, and not in a forced way. With that in mind, I think that that's an important point. Let's turn to the audience and uh, invite Marcus Rayner, if you want to uh, come off mute and, and turn on your video. Hold on. There we are. Can you see me? Yep. Yeah. Great. Well, I think, uh, um, Will's point was very, very well made just a few minutes ago. Uh, not only on the speed of obsolescence of existing installations, but the attractiveness of, of amenities. What I wonder about this is, are we, the question must be, are we moving from an era where landlords were very passive investors to where they must be very active investors and put in place the sort of amenities that Will was talking about? And if they do that, does it make it easier to underwrite the building so simply put, this now becomes a question for Brandon. Uh, instead of assuming that you'd only have two or three percent of the building dedicated to amenities, if the standard became five percent, which meant the landlord was underwriting serviced office providers, medical facilities, et cetera, et cetera, all the things that a high quality tenant needed, would yeah. that help good buildings be better underwritten in a, in a new world? Sorry, it's a very long question. It's a great question, Marcus. I like to think about it in terms of flight to quality is what we've always traditionally talked about at the end of every recession. Yeah. Still talking about it. I agree with it. Flight to quality is great. Location is, is paramount. But flight to capabilities is the clear next step, right? Um, if I can go to uh, if I can go to a building that is fantastic and is you know well appointed, got a great lobby, that's great. But if I can go to a building that's got a good lobby, but will offer me all of the other services on a pay-as-I-go basis, that'll help me achieve my business objectives, that'll share in some of the occupancy risk with me, that'll allow me to buy my space, customize it over the long term to build all the things that I wanted, but take advantage of those things and they're right for me and right for my building. Yeah, full stop. That's that's the that's the future in the way that Allidade and I see it at least. Um, but it goes back to that point, Marcus. We have to demonstrate that in doing these things and in entering into these shorter term agreements, there's value that can be created and right. value can be creative 
and changing weighted average least term drives levered return. You have to show it. And there's a ton of capabilities to, to do to get there. Yeah, I think yeah, John brought up, a, John, John really highlighted that that process is underway by his description of the flight quality and the amount of space that's being leased. I mean, I, you know, we all work in, some of us work in New York City where we have never seen a gap between high class, mm-hmm. top quality rentals at 300 bucks a square foot and sublease rentals at 29 bucks a foot. That has never happened in our history. So John's, John's trend that he highlighted that you, David, pointed out is well on its way. And I, I suspect it's not, going to, it's not going to return. Hey, Marcus and David, you know, from my perspective and the size of our company, we have a big responsibility, not only to our participants, but to our tenants. And so we're trying to create these communities for them. So when they come to work, they feel comfortable all day and it's going to be expensive. But at the end of the day, that responsibility, you know, we, we have quite a few properties now with mixed use, which I'm very keen going forward because you want to give them those flexibilities of where they live, where they work, where they want to be. And so some of the buildings that are of the, uh, you know, 42 stories, big box, 1982, you got to come in and be flexible and create those amenitizations where, you know, the lobby before, which was stark white marble, has gone away. So you need the collaborative space. If you're going to do a restaurant, do the right restaurant that you can visit three times a day and that doesn't close at two and smells like bacon. Um, and you want to have the health club and you want to have the right health club provider, not just uh, no disrespect if anybody from Ramada Inn is in here, but you know, with two pieces of equipment, but something that you would feel proud at an NFL combine. And so We've done this in San Diego where we have a park-like setting, 2 million square feet, where we put a soccer field in with lights because people there are majority of the day. We put in a garden so they have farm to table. So the tenants actually bring and plant their own food and then brings it to the kitchen where they then prepare it for them. So it's more of a collaboration and partnership with our tenants today, never before. And so I've been in this 33 years. I've been through four financial, you know, economic downturns, but this is the first time with the pandemic that we continually to, to learn from. And so I think there's never been more of a time to partner with our tenants on this. Anyone else on the panel? I, have, I want to change gears here for a moment. Okay. Um, rules of thumb. Uh, Ed Harris, you wanted to take us uh, in some specific directions and suggest some tools or find out about them? Ed, can you come? All right. Let's, Kate David, do you, David, do you want oh. me to just ask the question on behalf of Ed and then just let the sure. panel respond right. to it? So Thanks. Ed's question was, how much co-working type asset space are each of the panelists planning to utilize across their portfolios? Is there a percentage or a range which is becoming the standard in office use by tenants? So uh, in terms of co-working, I think we need to sort of you know, co-working is this catch-all term for flexible space, you know, but as, as a company, WTW never really got comfortable with the classic co-working model. And we're seeing more standalone, full floor, half floor spaces work much better for us. Um, it's pretty much the same as a direct lease 
in our in our eyes. So it's hard to say what percentage it would be. If I had to say percentage, it would be as much as I possibly can. You know, any space that's fit for purpose that we don't have to invest tens of millions of dollars of our you know our, of our own money into somebody else's asset is definitely something that we're interested in. Um, and so. You know, if I can get it above 50%, it would be great because, you know, that would mean that our, our you know, our, our total cost of occupancy would, you know, remain the same or go a little higher, but we're just not, you know, hemorrhaging CapEx on building these spaces out. So I, it's hard to put a number on it, but I, I would say is, you know, any, any deal that I'm looking at, I'm asking, are you looking at any co-working space that's built out that maybe we could supplement with a little CapEx to make it, you know, a bit more customized to us? Um, and we're starting to see a lot of traction on that. And our, and our users are, are much more open to that now than they were two years ago. And, and just to jump in, um, you know, full disclosure, the nature of uh, our business, there's a large percentage of our population that just can't use flex space. And, you know, we don't, as of right now, have a huge demand for it. So, so at my current company, it's something we're still kind of exploring. But at a previous one, we were being a little bit more aggressive about removing, you know, tertiary market locations and providing memberships for those folks um, and, and kind of monitoring the usage and, and, and scaling up or back based on that. So it, it, it's more need based right now, I would say. And, and that's that need is really dependent on what type, type of work you're doing, like sales folks who are always out in the field tend to like that a lot more because they don't even have a certain office. They can just jump around to different offices depending on, you know, where they are proximity to clients and customers and whatnot. Yeah. And I just, on the, it's not rocket science, why people use flex as you guys just laid it out. It's like, I want access to $150, $200, $200 space. And I want to use it for three or four years. So I have a marginal willingness to pay for three or four years to access that type of space. Um, so as your term goes sub five years, generally speaking, there's a break even point for that enterprise level effectiveness. Uh, as you start to become really small and talking like 10, 20, 30, 40 people in satellite locations, it's the same. Those are probably shorter term locations, but there's another calculus that goes into it. The cost of setting things up, the cost of operations, the cost to provide a centralized, uh, operating experience for those people. You cannot access scale for 50, 20 people. You can't give them the things that they want. So you have to leverage someone else's scale. And so the question of how much co-working type asset is in each portfolio is very much a function of the term that I'm looking for, the size of the facilities, and the, the uncertainty that I see in the future that's causing me to buy such short-term things. Um, but once you kind of control for the uncertainty, everything else is just math. Yep. I, I think Kay had a... Sorry, go ahead, Dave. I'm going to take us someplace else. Please wrap us up on this, Rich. No, I, I was going to say, I thought Kate had a, uh, a question. I saw she just came on camera. So I think. Yeah, well, I did. So, so far in our discussion, uh, we've been talking about the financial and the design solutions to a public health crisis, um, but we haven't touched on health itself. And Kate North, I'd like to invite you to uh, come on camera um, and take us there. Thank you, David. It's great to be on the call. I appreciate all the wonderful comments from everyone. Um, yes, I am interested around you know this whole idea of the, how the built environment can actually become a magnet to draw people back into the office. And knowing what we've gone through the past two years, the focus on health and safety, we know cleanliness is key, 
but do you see an uptick in, you know, well building certifications, you know, a way in which you can see the dashboard of the air quality in the buildings, you know, how important is this, do we believe going forward? Great question. Thanks. Um, from, from our perspective, I think it's hugely important, not only for an optics and, and letting your, your, your employees know that, that you care, but, you know, it's also been proven that better air quality, access to water and hydration, it just makes the brain work better and productivity goes up. So I think it's going to be important. I think the well certification is great. I mean, we're, we're looking into a portfolio wide solution now. Um, um, and, and like I said, it, 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 it's the best of worlds. Your, your employees see that you care about health and you know you get more productive employees when they have access to stuff. As far as the actual statistics and, and reporting and dashboards, that's when it starts to get into the details to a point where I guess, you know, what, what do you really want to report on this or how much detail do you want to go and how much detail do your employees want? We don't, we don't really know yet, but we know it's, it's, it's a want from our employees and we do think it is, you know, part of a bigger picture of bringing people back, um, but it's their choice. Yeah, we um, are very focused on it, and we've got more breakout and teams looking at this. But you know, what used to be on page six of the proposal now is on page two, and it's very near and dear to a lot of the corporations that are tenants in our building. So uh, we are very focused on it because we get ahead of it right now. It'll put us in a better position in the long run. Uh, do you see it as a standard expectation as part of the flight to quality that those high-end buildings, they're all just going to have it? It's going to be a given? Or do you see yeah. it? Okay. No, because I think the decision makers in those companies, the senior leaders are listening to their employees. And if an employee is going to come back to the office, they want to feel good. And yeah. if they're going to be at any duration, uh, they're, they're going to have to address it, which means we're going to address it as well. Good. Wayne, is your tech up and running? I'd be interested in your perspective. Nope. Not up and running. <laughs> Poor Wayne. Okay, um, great. Uh, I wonder how, if John or, or anyone might think about that in terms of those buildings that are not at the end uh, of the market, those buildings that may be struggling to attract tenants how much uh, of an advantage might wellness provide them versus just competing on price? And I throw that out to the group. I think we're, if we're not gonna accomplish what we need to in a particular building, we will sell it, you know, cause it will only hurt us. So it's like, okay, let's be smart about this, but what's, what's the capital going to be to put in there? And, you know, with TIAA, large company, obviously a large insurance company, reputational risk goes a long way. So we're very focused. Uh, just to, I would add to that, that it, it should follow, at least in our, in our ideologies, that if there are enough people who want this type of um, amenity, this capability, and they're willing to deploy it on their own, add environmental sensors, add a central, central uh, dashboards to it, then you're talking a building that's you know a couple hundred thousand square feet that's broken up into 10 or 20. The cost for them to provide that individually is astronomical. So is there, ad, is there advantage when you start to ask questions of your tenancies, what's important to you? 
Is it having flex space? It's important to you. Is it having uh, air quality? It's important to you. Is it having bookable space? Is it having a restaurant? These are things that we have to ask our clients because John, to your point, it's different, right? There's, there's a different mentality in each of the marketplaces. You might have a different mentality in Houston that you have in LA. And so you look to it and say, if they're all going to build this and it's going to cost them 400 grand, $4 million, whatever, and I can do the same thing for two, well, then I've just done it as a service. But it's not, there's no, it doesn't feel like today we have clear, you know, hard line answers to say, this is true everywhere that we go. John, to the point that you made earlier, like talking about soccer fields and restaurants, all humans need to eat and all humans should exercise. Whether they do or not is different, right? But those are human functions, but you start to get into the secondary tertiary business case stuff. You might have a building that has, that you're required to put a commercial food kitchen in. Why? Because you have enough people who need a commercial kitchen. It, it, it's just a question of listening, understanding their cost of doing it, interpreting your cost of doing it, leveraging your scale in the same way you leverage TI and financeability to give them CapEx dollars. You leverage your scale to provide them something that enough people want to make it something as a service. Thanks. Alec Monahan, do you have a related thought or question? Hold on. Yeah, I just had a, just a question from the landlord side or the tenant side. If there's good examples of clauses, this may be more of a follow-up question after the call. But a couple of my clients are looking to, you know, sustainability. They have a checklist. They have a matrix. They're really, it's a focus of theirs. And it's a question of what can be inserted in the leases to ensure you know, LEED certified is kind of an old, old school. It's more about the air quality and the wellness factors. So how can they protect themselves that if it, it will be done or it's going to be provided for them as tenants? Good. Will, I mean, we, what do you been, insert? We've been, so we, we've been looking at this and we're, we're just starting to insert these types of clauses in our, in our lease negotiations. And a lot of it at the start is about, you know, we, we want the landlord to report their, sustainability statistics to us. So we're able to then report that to the market. You know, we're, we're in, you know, more sustainable buildings. Um, you know, there's, there's others, uh, you know, other clauses that we're looking at um, probably more in terms of how much renewable energy is the landlord buying, you know, to power the building and start getting into, start getting into clauses like that. You're now seeing most landlords really sort of being more amenable to it. Um, I guess there's there's probably an unlimited amount of clauses that you can insert, but you don't want to prolong a lease negotiation and you eventually want to get a deal done. So we've we've started with the basics, but I think as as we move more and more on and as ESG becomes more of a focus, not only for the real estate group, but for the company, then looking at real estate as one of the biggest factors in, in sustainability for the company, there, there will be more and more that we can insert. Um, and it's, it varies wildly by region, you know, what we're asking for in Europe, you know, might be yeah. there, but you know, ask, you know, some smaller landlords in the US, they might not have, have any idea how to do it. You know, it just depends. So I, I, I think that's going to be more and more of a demand from tenants as we, as we get into these deals. Thank you. And are you, are you addressing it both from an ESG point of view? Uh, as well as sort of a health and wellness point of view, I'm thinking about carbon, obviously. Yeah, well, we're, we're um, we include health and wellness in our ESG sort of talks. So as we we started last year to have more serious conversations around ESG, and we've kind of broke it down from a real estate perspective into 
sustainability, the big one, health and wellness, one of the other big ones, and inclusion and diversity. So we're, we're taking a look at all three of those factors. Um, health and wellness, as it relates to leases, we haven't gotten stuck into the details too much, but it is on, it is on the to-do list. Great. Uh, Rich, any actions along these lines uh, where you are now or where you've been in the past? Yeah, I mean, where, where I'm at now, you know, we do a lot of manufacturing. So that's that's where we make a lot more of our impact. And we have a lot of uh, our health and wellness initiatives and carbon footprint initiatives are really focused there. Um, you know, and then in terms of our, our leased office space, you know, I, I kind of look at it as like a hierarchy of needs situation where there's some fundamental issues that we need to make sure are taken care of, whether, you know, to Will's point, whether it's an office in India that, you know, we might be dealing with other issues versus, or a smaller office in, uh, in the U.S., we, you know, there might be other issues that we need to deal with first and foremost. And then in some of our more major markets, you know, those are the things that we just need to make sure we're taking care of um, kind of behind the scenes from a, from a real estate, enterprise real estate services perspective. And we are paying more attention to that as we go into these new leases and major markets. But, um, you know, it's not something I'm hearing from, a, from an employee feedback perspective. It's just kind of uh, almost taken for granted that, that we're just getting it done. And, you know, they're, they're more looking at amenities and, you know, making sure that their businesses uh, and groups are supported for what they need to do from a work perspective. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Wayne. Um, and thank you, everyone. There are a number of additional questions, but I'm afraid we're out of time. Stephen, thanks for the opportunity to put the panel together today. Over to you. Great. Um, David, fantastic. Thank you so much for the panel and thanks to all the panelists. So thank you, Will. Thank you, Rich. Thank you, Notepad, which uh, <laughs> John and Wayne and Brandon. So fantastic panel. Thank you everyone for joining. Thank you the audience for joining and the questions and have a great day. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks a lot guys. Cheers. Thanks everybody. Thanks, Be safe. Thanks.